So I want to give you a little background uh, before I dive right into this and uh, about where this message started, you know, um, I started pursuing it and thinking about it. And that is uh, within uh, the past couple of years, we have gone through uh, quite a few things uh, in this country. Uh, number one being the pandemic. Uh, number two, um, we've seen recently the war in Russia and Ukraine. And we have seen our morals as Christians being attacked uh, continually. And as this has happened, um, I started realizing that people in authority have an opportunity as they create fear, okay, and bring it to a high level, like we've seen, to take uh, more control. And it's just the way it happens. People start to compromise. And before you know it, morals are compromised. And um, we are not sometimes in such a good area. We don't even realize how we got there. But through fear and not staying in the word, it's, that's, that's one way it could happen. So I'm going to get right into this message. I'm going to ask you for your mercy, as you always give me, uh, to allow me to read off my notes. I'll take my eyes off my notes whenever I can, whenever I feel comfortable. So we're all aware of the destructive consequences associated with poor decisions and a lapse in judgment. We do not plan to mess up, but it can easily happen if we try to navigate life without boundaries. It's not enough to hope God will protect us. He does not usually keep us from consequences of poor decisions we make freely. His protection comes when we seek and apply the wisdom he has provided us in the Bible. Ephesians 5, 15 through 17. So then, be careful how you walk, not as unwise people, but as wise, making the most of your time, because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand that the will, what the will of the Lord is. Our greatest regrets could have been avoided with boundaries in our life. Culture does not suggest boundaries, just guidelines. So let's talk about that for a minute. Guidelines, as I've studied it, okay, are suggestions. And a boundary is a line drawn in the sand. One side of the boundary is your neighbor's. This side of the boundary is yours. One side of the boundary is the world. The other side of the boundary is the kingdom of God. During the past couple of years, many boundaries have been crossed to satisfy guidelines. For 30 years, Linda and I, uh, we went up to uh, the northern part of Minnesota, Ely, Minnesota, and in that area was known as the Boundary Waters. And uh, what was going on up there is you would fish several lakes. Half of the lake would be in Minnesota, and half of the lake would be in Canada. And when you look at it on a map, you'd see just a red line going through it on the map. And there was no markers. I expected the first couple times we went out there to see markers in the water, okay, to be sure I didn't go over that boundary. 
But the story is, is that if you did go over that boundary, regardless if it was an imaginary line or not, they would have planes flying around, they'd have uh, boats that were surveying, and if you ended up on the Canadian side, you would get pulled over by the Canadian police. You could lose uh, your license to ever fish in there again. You could get fined and lose all your fishing equipment. So um, a boundary is a very, very serious thing. Listen to this. Galatians 6, 7, and 8. This is really interesting. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a person sows, this he will also reap. For the one who sows to his flesh will reap destruction from the flesh. But the one who sows to the Spirit will reap eternal life from the Spirit. Now, I don't know about you, but that's a clear boundary. Very clear. If you sow to the flesh, you're going to reap from the flesh. If you sow to the Spirit, you're going to reap from the Spirit. That is about as clear of a boundary in Scripture that you're going to find. Here Paul reminds us that whatever a man sows, that he will also reap. God is a just God and has instituted throughout human experience the concept of sowing and reaping. When a farmer plants seeds and cares for those seeds, they will sprout and produce growth. In the same way, whatever a person plants in his own thinking and behavior will later bear fruit either good or bad. If a person is focused on fulfilling the desires of the flesh, then that is what he invests in. That person will reap the fruit of that investment. Paul describes this fruit in Galatians. Now the deeds of the flesh are evident, which are sexual immorality, impurity, indecent behavior, idolatry, witchcraft, hostility, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions, envy, drunkenness, carousing, and things like these, of which I forewarn you, just as I have forewarned you, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. On the other hand, if one invests in spiritual things, then the fruit of his life will be spiritual and wholesome. Paul explains how the Holy Spirit produces fruit in people and what it looks like. We see this in Galatians, starting in verse 22. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. Paul introduces the truth that what a man sows, he also reaps with a somber warning. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. Wise readers will take heed to their own lives and take steps to ensure they live according to this principle. Let no one entertain matters that what you sow, God searches the heart and knows every circumstance. Reaping follows sowing, and his decree that the harvest will match the planting will not be set aside. It's clear, correct? Church, can you see that? I'd like to go back for a second and talk about a boundary. In this case, a boundary line. Quite a few years ago, as I was 
purchasing some property up in the North Woods, I want to say way back in 2013, I had asked the surveyors when they go out to the property if they could stake out the land. I really frankly don't even know if you can ask them anymore to do that. I don't even know if they do that. But they said sure. So they went to the property and they started from the back all the way to the roadside, all the way back, and went across the property and placed stakes in the ground with little ribbons so I knew exactly where their boundary line was. So they placed stakes in the ground to form the boundary. And today I'm talking about the line between the boundary line, between the world and the Church of Christ. Stakes in the ground that cannot be moved that form our line. Hebrews 13.8 says, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. The world says, popular opinion rules today, different from yesterday, and subject to change tomorrow. The bars of morals and truths are constantly being lowered, and subsequently, subsequently, we need to hold fast to our faith and remind ourselves of the stakes forming our boundary line. I want to establish some unmovable stakes we as believers should have along that line. As we look at the life of Jesus Christ, we see that he did nothing outside of his Father's will. In John 5, he says, I can do nothing on my own. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is righteous, because I do not seek my own will, but the will of him who sent me. The Bible records Jesus praying countless times during his ministry here on earth. Jesus used scripture as Satan tempted him in the wilderness. If you're the Son of God, command these stones to become bread. Jesus combated that with scripture and says, Thou shalt not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes out of the mouth of God. And two more times, Satan tempted him. And two more times, Jesus responded, defeating the enemy's plan with scripture. Jesus took time to fast. He took time to pray. In Luke 5, verse 16, it says, But Jesus himself would often slip away to the wilderness and pray. And in Mark 1, 35, it says, And in the early morning, while it was still dark, Jesus got up, left the house, went away to a secluded place, and prayed there for a time. Jesus had compassion. He did not compromise. His yes was yes, and his no was no. His life on earth leaves us a goal for living a kingdom life. Paul the Apostle also lived a life of prayer without compromise. Preaching the gospel to all the world, making disciples for Christ, and not afraid to die for his faith in Christ. So this morning, I want to remind and challenge us all with five stakes that should be forming our line. So I do have a photo. I don't know if you're going to put that on there, Han. A photo to show you, okay? I took this a couple weeks ago when I was up in the North Woods. 
So there's the property boundary, National Forest land behind this sign. So I just wanted to get you a, a visual. That's a stake planted in the ground. And that's a boundary line, okay? Well, along that boundary line, stakes are planted. If you go on that side, you're in National Forest land. If you're on this side, you're on public land, your land, whatever. So I want you to get that picture. I want us to go over some stakes that should be planted along our boundary line that should not be moved. All right, stake number one. Here it is. The Bible is to be our source of truth. Psalm 1, verse 1 and 2. Blessed is the person who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the path of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and his law... On his law, he meditates day and night. If the Bible isn't the Christian's source of morality, then the question needs to be asked, what is it? Or what should it be? In 2 Timothy 3.16, it says, All scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for rebuke, for correction, for training in righteousness. Again, in John 17, 17, it says, Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. In Psalm 19, verse 7, The law of the Lord is perfect, restoring the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. Jesus Christ is the Word. And we see that in John 1.14. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we see His glory, glory as of the Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. The Word is alive and active. In Hebrews 4.12, for the Word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, able able even penetrating as far as the division of soul and spirit of both joints and marrow and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. The Bible is the sole objective source of all God has given us about himself and his plan for humanity. As God's infallible word, the Bible is inerrant, authoritative, reliable, and sufficient to meet our needs. The Bible contains God's revealed moral will in his law and commandments. As such, the Bible becomes our source of morality because the Bible is the very word of God in written form. If Christians want to know God's will, he turns to the Bible. If a Christian wants to discern right from wrong, he turns to the Bible. What happens if a Christian does not use the Bible as their source of morality? We all tend to trust our conscience. Our conscience warns us when we transgress our moral standard. The catch is, our conscience is only as good as the moral standard that informs it. 
If it's not the Bible, then we inevitably inform our conscience by various other means. The current reigning competitor to biblical morality in our society is social consensus. In other words, our morality is shaped and changed by the culture around us. It should be easy to see that if social consensus is our moral compass, then we have built our morality on a foundation of shifting sand. Social consensus is just that, a consensus. It's a picture of the general social opinions of the day. At the end of the Sermon on the Mount, our Lord said these words, Everyone who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house upon the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat on that house. But it did not fall, because it has been founded on the rock. The Word of God, the Bible, is the only rock upon which we build morality. Number two, a second stake planted in the ground. Seeing the big picture. When man fell from the garden, God had a salvation plan. He sent his son Jesus to die on the cross. Our sin transferred to him and his righteousness given to all those who believe. When I talk about seeing the big picture, I'm saying take our eyes off of our circumstances and try looking down the corridor of time to a much larger and greater outcome for the kingdom. In Romans 8.28, says this, And we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God to those who are called according to his purpose. And in Jeremiah 29.11, says, For I know the plans that I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for prosperity and not for disaster, to give you a future and a hope. When we do all things with the big picture in mind, and trust God's sovereignty, our faith and trust will be strengthened. Seeing the big picture is to be able through every single circumstance to view it as if looking through the eye of God. It is to be God conscious. It is to make every decision of life and to do every action of life with God in mind in a positive sense. Our third stake in the ground, do all things to glorify God. The idea of glorifying God is that of honoring God with one's life. In 1 Corinthians, verse 10, 31, therefore whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all things for the glory of God. This teaches us to honor the Lord in all we do. So whatever you eat or drink, do it all for the glory of God. We are free to make personal choices in life 
where we are not to do anything to cause another person to stumble or sin in his walk with God. We are to seek the good of others. 1 Corinthians 10, 32 and 33, Paul said, Do not offend Jews or Greeks or the church of God, just as I also please everyone in all things, not seeking my own benefit, but the benefit of the many, so that they may be saved. To glorify God requires full commitment to him. In Colossians, verse 3, 23, says, Whatever you do, do your work heartily as for the Lord and not for people. This context is Paul's direction for Christian slaves working for human masters. Even in this role, their work was to be, to be done as if they were serving Jesus. Glorifying God in everything means we honor him in our thoughts and our actions. Jesus always glorified his Father in heaven. There was never a moment when he did not. When he faced the temptations of Satan, he quoted scripture all three times. Jesus was a man of the word, fully committed to God's will. And his example of overcoming temptation offers hope to all of us who seek to stand firm in times of temptation. To glorify God in everything, we must exercise faith. Hebrews 11.6 reads like this. And without faith, is it, impossible to, it is impossible to please him. For the one who comes to God must believe that he exists and that he proves to be one who rewards those who seek him. To glorify God, we need to love without hypocrisy. Romans 12.9, love must be free of hypocrisy. Detest what is evil. Cling to what is good. To glorify God, we must deny ourselves. Luke 23, 9-23. And he was saying to them all, If anyone wants to come after me, he must deny himself. Take up his cross daily and follow me. Be filled with the Spirit and offer ourselves as a living sacrifice to God. We should strive for every thought and deed to bring joy to our Father in heaven. That's glorifying God. So you ask me one more time, Dave, what does it mean to glorify God? Here it is. It means to magnify his glory before the world. You cannot give God glory. He is glory. It's one of his attributes. You cannot add to his nature. You're enhancing the doctrine about him. You're enhancing his glory in the eyes of men. In Philippians 1.20, Paul gave us an example. Paul said that Christ may be magnified in my body. He did not mean that Christ needs to be improved on. He meant that in the eyes of the world, Christ needs to be exalted through him. And when we glorify God, we are not adding to his nature. 
We're merely revealing who he is. One more thing. In Psalm 16:8, David said this, I have set the Lord continually before me. When David says, I have set the Lord continually before me, he says that in everything I do, my attention is giving to God. All that I do is done with my focus riveted to him. It is for his glory and his honor and his will. Man's chief purpose on this earth is to glorify God in all that we do. This was Christ's pattern. It was David's pattern. And this is to be the believer's pattern. To always live to the glory of God. Then the supreme thing is this, that in life, in the life of a man, in the life of a woman, anybody who's ever been born into this world is to magnify God with their life. One more thing. Did I say one more thing already? Okay. One final thing about God's glory. I, this is just, this is so amazing. I love this. In John 11, 39 and 40, when Jesus was on his way, he found out that Lazarus had died and he was on his way to the tomb. Actually, it turned out to be a cave. And when he got there, Martha and Mary and many other people were there. And Jesus said, remove the stone. And Martha, the sister of Lazarus, said to him, oh, it's up there. Okay, I can't paraphrase. <laughs> said, Lord, by this time, there will be a stench for he has been dead four days. Now look at this. Jesus said to her, did I not say to you that if you believe, you will see the glory of God? So the, same, the glory we're talking about here is the power of God. I really do not believe. Jesus was in no hurry to get to that cave, to get to that tomb. He knew he was going to work this miracle. And he knew his father was going to be glorified by this. And I just found that really interesting. That, that glory that we're talking about, that power we're talking about, is that same power that God used to create the world. Okay. Our fourth stake in the ground. Do not compromise. When we compromise, we make concessions for someone who does not agree with a certain set of standards or rules. There are times when compromise is good and right. This is a basic skill, as most of our men know in this church, that is needed in marriage. For example, some of us more than others. For example, and in other areas, um, which in keeping the peace. In other words, it's more important than getting one's own way. I mean, you know, we can allow compromise there. The Bible makes it clear that God does not condone compromising his commands. In Deuteronomy 5.32, it says, Be careful 
Do what the Lord your God has commanded you. Do not turn aside to the right or to the left concerning matters that God has addressed. We do not bargain or negotiate. As we go through life, we'll encounter many situations of compromise. The pleasures of sin, deceptive philosophy, and the lust of the flesh, eyes, and pride of life. These are areas of compromise that are going to continue to come at us. Colossians 2.8 reads like this. See to it. There is no one who takes you captive through philosophy and empty deception in accordance with human tradition, in accordance with the elementary principles of the world, rather than in accordance with Christ. In 1 John 2.16, it says, For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. All tempt us to compromise in areas we should not. Usually the temptation to compromise is heightened by some type of fear, such as the fear of being rejected or criticized. What makes compromise so dangerous is the subtle way it approaches us. It does not involve a destruction of worldly ways or ideals. It accommodates them. He would never ask us to toss Christ aside and replace him with an idol. Compromise says that you can have both, the idol and Jesus too. There's room on the shelf for both. So what's the harm? Some areas of compromise could be the type of vehicle you wish to drive or where to host a party celebration. Areas of no compromise would be the lordship and the authority of Christ and the authority of Christ and the moral issues as defined in Scripture. We long to follow Christ in all of our ways and to share the good news of salvation with others. The better we know God, the better we can resist the temptation to compromise what is important. The last stake in the ground I want to talk about today is healthy relationships. But I want to tell you before I start talking about the healthy relationships that the first four stakes that we have in the ground, the Bible being our source of truth, no compromise, giving all the glory to God, and seeing the big picture. Those four stakes that we have in the ground. If we don't have those stakes firmly planted in the ground, then building healthy relationships is impossible. So those four stakes are all contingent and are very important in building healthy relationships. As Christians, we constantly face temptations of the world around us. We maintain a close relationship with God and continue to put aside any of our old ways of doing things. We must use wisdom, wisdom concerning activities that we participate in and the people we spend time with. People are divided into only two categories. 
Sounds simple, right? Two categories with all the people. Are you kidding me? Those who belong to the world and its ruler Satan and those who belong to God. Those in darkness and those in light. Those who have peace with God and those who are at war with him. Those who believe the truth and those who believe in lies. Those on the narrow path to salvation and those on the broad road to destruction. Clearly believers are much different than non-believers. In 1 Corinthians 15.33, it tells us that bad company corrupts good character. Proverbs 13.20 says, He who walks with wise men will be wise, but the corruption of fools will suffer harm. Proverbs 22, 24 and 25. Do not make friends with a person given to anger or go with a hot-tempered person or you will learn his ways and find a snare for himself. In Mark 2, verse 17, and I want to put a however in front of everything that I just said. However, I mean, come on. We're called to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ to the world. How do we expect the kingdom of God to grow if we don't hang around unbelievers? How are dead spirits and blind eyes going to open if we don't get out there and tell them the truth and preach the gospel, right? So we see different truths in the word of God. In Mark 2.17, Jesus said, It is not those that are healthy that need a physician, but those who are sick. Jesus himself hung around tax collectors and sinners. And then Jesus told us to go out and preach to the world the truth. Give them the gospel. So which way is it? There's nothing wrong with building quality, quality relationships with unbelievers. But the primary focus of such a relationship should be to win them to Christ by sharing the gospel with them. So two questions. Two questions that I've come up with that we should ask as you pursue these friendships. Number one, which way is the transforming, influencing, influence flowing? In other words, when, yeah, exactly, Pastor. Who is influencing who? Are you winning them over for the gospel? Or are they winning you over to their way of life, to the world? That's question number one, and that's important. That should be asked as you pursue these relationships, these friendships. And number two, are we loving these people for what they enjoy or loving them to bring them the gospel? Two very, very important questions. 
I really think that the warning, basically I'm nearly done with my message, but I want to close with this. I really think that the warning for us as Christians, and we've talked about this scripture many times in Matthew 7, 21, 23, and what it boils down to is this. The ones that say they know Christ, the ones in the church that say they have a relationship with Christ, and they're practicing lawlessness. Those are the ones that we need to be careful of. That warning is in Matthew 7, 21, 23. When Jesus said, Not everyone who asks and says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But the one who does the will of my Father, who is in heaven, will enter. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did I not prophesy in your name, and in your name cast out demons, and in your name perform many miracles. And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Leave me, you who practice lawlessness. Church, this message today is a message we should really carry in our hearts. I mean, we're filled with a lot of different emotions. A lot of different things are thrown at us in the world today. Fear, if it can be raised, will be raised. Even the law, the war in Russia and Ukraine right now, if you think about it, a lot of it is fought over boundaries. We need to keep our hearts right. We need to stay in the word. How else can we be keep that boundary line exactly where it needs to be? Remember, one side of that boundary, there's no gray area. Pastor mentioned it earlier. There's no gray area anymore. One side is the world. One side is the kingdom of God. It's clear cut. I'm going to close in prayer. Father, we come before you today. Thank you, God, for your word. Lord, I pray that each and every one of us would grow to value your word. Lord, more importantly, thank you for your immutability, your inability to change, God. Thank you, Lord, that your word is the same today, yesterday, and tomorrow. Pray, God, that you would give us wisdom, that you would keep us humble to always continue to learn from you and learn from your word. I pray, Lord, that you would soften our hearts and our minds as we go forth in this world. I pray, God, that you would use us, use us, Lord, mightily to win souls for your kingdom. Thank you, God. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you, church.